the hard shoulder on News Talk with Nissan Subscribe and Drive. No deposit, no compromise, no fuss. Find out more at Nissan.ie. You're very welcome back to The Hard Shoulder. Kieran Cudahy with you until 7 o'clock this evening. And delighted to say that former president of the GAA, Nikki Brennan, is my guest this week for the Thursday interview. Nikki, you're welcome to the show. How are you? Hello, Kieran. I'm very good. Thanks very much. Um, I, I find myself often, given what's going on in the world in this lot, asking people how they found the last 18 months. Uh, you got COVID. Yeah, I did. Yeah, maybe late for the last year or so. I got a bad dose for two, Kieran. I was uh, quite ill for 10 days. I was in a... A scary spot uh, went sent into uh, St. Luke's, the local hospital that you know well. And uh, I wasn't kept in. They reckoned I was uh, probably able to handle it. And one of the big factors, and you will know about this as well, is that um, I didn't have any breathing problems because I do a lot of swimming. And uh, you've seen me and, and the act of swimming on a few occasions. And that was a big factor. Now there was had other issues that needed to be addressed. But it was a, a scary time, Kieran, and uh, took me a while now to get over it. So... Am I fully back to where I was before COVID? Probably can't say that, but nevertheless, very grateful to have uh, got out of it and uh, know that uh, I did, I was far luckier than a lot of poor people were. Yeah, I, I'm trying to cast my mind back to, you know, April last year. People getting it now, I suppose we, we know so much more about the treatment and management of it. Now, still some people succumb to it and, and that's awful. But, you know, there was a real panic about it you know in April last year when you got it so much was unknown I mean for some people they would have heard Mickey Brennan's got COVID and they would have feared the worst immediately well probably I can understand that and uh, I suppose it was very dominant on the news as well and you were getting the uh, stories of uh, deaths and uh, at that stage it was very you know it was very scary to be honest about it I mean we're obviously not getting as much news now other than the number of people that are impacted but, I mean, the stories of deaths and uh, when RT were bringing up on the six o'clock every evening, you know, photographs of people who had died and that, uh, you know, it was it was very tough because people were being kept in their houses a lot. There was no social activity going on and it was a very, very difficult time for everybody. And it was particularly tough for the older people. It was very difficult for those in uh, in care homes and in those type of settings and all of that. And there was a lot of stories emanating about the challenges they were facing. So... For a lot of people, it was a very difficult time. And uh, I know that in the in recent days, I've heard the T-shirt talk about how Ireland as a country can uh, acknowledge what happened and, and put some sort of remembrance together. And I think that will be important because for many Kieran, they didn't get a proper opportunity to have a send-off at the funeral where friends and relatives could come. And that would have been important to a lot of people. And uh, it was a sad, sad occasion because of that in particular. Uh, um, did you mentioned like how, how little people had to do as well to distract them. I'm sure you found that hard. I know you're retired now, but but you'd be fairly active and certainly be active going to going to GA matches and involved with your own club and Conaghy. Like how how difficult did you find all of that being paused? Well, it was difficult enough because uh, as you know, I'm involved in a local community radio station. That's my hobby now and uh, preparing programmes each week. And even though we couldn't have guests around the place, you could still get people on the phone or you could play music or you could do something. Obviously, when I got COVID, that was out of the question and it was quite some time before I was able to go back. I mean, there was little like bar watching television and uh, maybe for once we were grateful for having uh, living in multi-channel land. But other than that, it was a question of I once I could do it, I was back doing an awful lot of walking trying to get back my strength and uh, that was the that was the height of my involvement at that stage it was a bit surreal you you literally went to the shop with your face covered when you were able to go 
and there was nothing else on and uh, you just had to um, adjust your lifestyle and it was look we have plenty of green fields around the place here i mean the the, the grandkids were able to the local that were that are living locally were able to call outside in, in the car as it were look out through the window and you said hello to them and it was all a surreal situation but at the end of the day i i, I know i was luckier than, than an awful lot of people and my circumstances you know, difficult as they might have been, were were insignificant in comparison to what a lot of people had to go through. How how have you found retirement? Well, I'm retired quite a number of years now uh, from Glanby. I, I worked in Glanby all my life. Something unusual, Kieran. I finished my leaving cert in St. Kieran's on a Wednesday and started in uh, in the the Glanby organisation. It wasn't called Glanby then back in 1971 and stayed there for 43 years. A wonderful company led by wonderful people that had probably 100 employees back in 71 and maybe eight to 10,000 when I left back five years ago. It has grown around the world to be a major food and protein or a business now that is, uh, that is just fantastic what has, what has happened here. And uh, it has really put Ireland on the map in terms of a food, food business, the same as Kerry and many other of the great Irish food organisations. So I, after I finished that, I got involved in doing things in the GA. And not, I wasn't planning on that, but I was asked to get involved in a number of projects from a technology point of view, which would be my background got involved in that and um, that kept me going up to recently I was involved in various things but I'm finished now with my involvement in the GA that finished up actually as it happens around the time I got COVID but it was happening anyway so I look at I'm happy to have left it I was you know maybe going into Croke Park too often and it was time for me to get out and um, and uh, realised that others are well capable of doing what I was doing. You mentioned how Glambia has changed. I mean, you, you've been involved in the GAA, well, as a, as a player in the local club, we could say you've been involved your whole life. How has the association changed? Well, it's very different, Kieran, from the time, I suppose, when I was playing with, uh, with, with Kenny. You, you didn't have the, the, the sports science that's associated with the game now. Uh, you, had, uh, you had one medical person that you went to for all your care needs and that was one Dr. Kieran Curry who was rather would have been well known to you he was <laughs> uh, he was just a wonderful a wonderful kind man and uh, he looked after all our medical needs and was subsequently replaced by one Dr. Bill Curry who was equally better known to you <laughs> so I think your family's connection with the James Kenny uh, deserves to be highlighted because of the unselfish way they gave up their time but it was very different then the training I suppose was 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 still intense um, we didn't have the quality of maybe pitches they have now. We didn't have the quality of the slitters they have now. We didn't have maybe the quality of the hurlies they have now. There was a lot of things about it. And, and don't get for one minute anyone listening to think that training was any easier than it is today. But there's so many other factors now where, uh, where our athletes now are, are just they're so well honed and tuned to take part in intercounty activity. It is incredible. And they have to live a lifestyle that, quite honestly, is... Um, is demanding of them. And that was a lot different back in, in, in the days when, when, when I would have been playing with Kenny. It's not that people weren't disciplined, don't get me wrong, but they maybe didn't have quite the disciplined lifestyle that is required now to compete at the top level, as we see with all the top teams. Uh, when you look back on, on, on that career in the GAA, I mean, what, what is it you look back most fondly, fondly on? Like, is it, the, is it the All-Ireland wins as a player? Is it your time as president? Is it something with the club? Well, first for me, it'll always be with the club. I mean, when we won the uh, the junior county final in 1976, it was a breakthrough for us. It hadn't happened before, and that was a big occasion. We won the intermediate the following year, beating a club that's close to your heart. 
And I suppose they, they were the occasions that made a lot for, uh, for, for, for me as a player and what we achieved. We went from junior to playing senior. We were never going to sustain that because we're a totally rural parish, as you know, and we just didn't have the numbers. But, but that was a great period for us. And I suppose it's ironic then that in my time as president that I would end up presenting the cup to my own club. I, I am still the only president that presented a club All-Ireland title to their own club. And that was something that was important to me because many of the young lads on that team, and I still probably call them young lads now, would have been lads I would have coached at underage level. So th that was that was important. So there's different milestones along along my way. I mean, obviously, and rather ironically, I was meeting a young lady during the week who was doing a, a, a thesis as part of her master's degree. And she's doing a thesis on the Ireland-England rugby and she was chatting to me about my own views on it, which she wanted to uh, have in her thesis. And I, I would have said to her that probably the one minute or probably less of God Save the Queen in Croke Park between England and Ireland was probably the singular moment in my presidency, probably that stands out because it was much bigger than just a sporting occasion. It was um, an occasion where relationships politically between our two lands, Ireland and England, where they improved considerably and uh, that was all helped by the staging of that event in Croke Park, which had a long lead into the game itself. There was a lot of stuff went on behind the scenes and just being there on the day and seeing how well everything went. And of course, Ireland getting a great win into the bargain. It just created atmospheres at political level that made it easier for the respective governments to uh, to, to to move on with their if, if you're just tuning into the hard shoulder, uh, Nikki Brandon is my guest this week for the Thursday interview. How personally nervous were you in the build-up to that Ireland-England rugby match? I think that's a very good question, Kieran, because I was. I'm not going to deny it. The, uh, the whole lead-up to the event. I was, I, was, I was actually elected president on the day the decision was made to open Croke Park. But obviously, 12 months later, I took over and all the arrangements then were, in, were started in relation to the staging of the games. Now, uh, the credit for that now clearly would have been Peter McKenna's as the stadium director and Lee Mulville as the archer at the time. They, they played very prominent roles. But we got, obviously, we got tremendous cooperation from the IRFU and the FBI because clearly they were their gigs, but clearly they were being played in Croke Park and the stadium was going to be responsible for all the, um, the logistics of running the game. But there was nervousness up to There was a lot of discussions took place uh, between the, uh, the government of Ireland and people in Northern Ireland in the UK. And Danny Lynch, who was then the, um, the, the head man in communications, he was excellent because he, had a, he, had a, he was a civil servant by profession and he had a great way of dealing with tensions that were there because there was, there was discussions at the time about perhaps uh, Britain making an apology for 1920. And uh, we didn't think this was appropriate because it was piggybacking on an event and, and things like that. So, but Danny Lynch would have been would have been excellent in the way that he um, he, he steered that whole thing. But I had quite a lot of re relations, good relationship with the um, the British ambassador at the time, David Reddington. And it, it was such a huge occasion. There was a global, a global press interest in the event. Conor O'Shea met with the RFU and the players in England and explained the significance of the GA and Croke Park. And I got our PR department to produce a booklet as well about the GA and Croke Park, which we gave to uh, visiting media so that they could understand more about the, the GAA. Because I felt it was an opportunity for us to uh, to spread our message all, all together during that time. And it was a very successful period. And it, it was a financial part of it as well. There's no point in saying otherwise. It brought in 
somewhere in the order of 32, 33 million, which was distributed back down to the association in various different ways. And many of the infrastructure developments that are out there today are as the result of those games taking place in Croke Park. How hard were you praying when God Save the Queen started playing that nobody would boo? I think that's, yeah, another another very good question, Kieran. I was sure. I was aware there were some demonstrations outside. I, I knew there was a letter had been left in uh, with my name on it, which others had taken charge of. And I, I there was there was tension. There's no point in t- saying other words. And when the when God Save the Queen finished and I sat down, I was on my left and right was uh, with the president and the Taoiseach of the day. And uh, to say it was relief at that at all. And the way the whole thing was handled, I think, it said a lot for how the country had matured and how we had it, how we had got on with this particular scenario. Because to many who were, you know, from England with that, they said, this is only a bloody game of rugby in a, in a, in a stadium. What are we on about? But I mean, people who knew the history of it and um, going back to 1920 and, and, and other, other angles to history as well. So when it was over, it was with a sense of great relief that I sat down and enjoyed the match. I can tell you that much. It, it, it was quite a few years, actually, before you were president, about 10 or 12 years, you were at a Congress and you talked about the, the, the state of hurling in the mid-90s. You said hurling was dying at the time. Yeah, well, the prompt, yeah, well, yeah, that happened, yeah. It was a hurling committee that was chaired by the late Tommy Barrett of Tipperary. And I suppose I was being opportunistic in presenting the report to um, to the Congress that was held up in um, in Cavan, in the hotel up in Cavan Street, Russell. And there wasn't an awful lot going on at the same Congress. So I said to Tommy that I might embellish the presentation a little bit and uh, and throw in a couple of Scud missiles to get people excited about it. So hence, I used terminology maybe. And at the end of the day, I was probably right because it did, it did uh, bring around... Um, a, a rethinking about how we might uh, de- develop hurling, hurling and pr- promote hurling, and particularly among maybe the uh, the counties below Tier One, because it was in a difficult state. It was but for the uh, efforts of some uh, pioneering hurlers who had gone to live in different counties, perhaps as members civil servants, perhaps as Gardaí, who kept hurling afloat. It wasn't easy to keep it going. But I think it all has evolved over the years and with the restructuring of competitions now from the Lee McCarthy at the top down to the um, Lowry Mar at the bottom, the five tiers. I, I think hurling is in a much better place now because we now have players from the so-called weaker counties can aspire to play in Croke Park in a final. And that was always a dream of anybody growing up, the opportunity to play in Croke Park. And I think hurling has achieved that. And hopefully when the whole COVID thing settles down, that the tier two football will offer similar opportunities to players as well to play in Croke Park on a major occasion mm. and uh, win a title for their county. And, and is that a, a healthy future for hurling? Do you think that, that those teams competing at those levels? Because for some, a healthy future is a, a much more competitive tier one. Like how, how likely or how possible do you think that is? Because it strikes me when you said that when hurling is dying in, in, in 1994, I mean, really, the tier one teams then are, are, are pretty much the same tier one teams as they are today. Maybe take out Offaly and put in Limerick. Yeah, Kieran, I think, I think we have to be realistic here. I think it is, uh, you will have a number of counties uh, maybe hopping between tier one and tier two uh, periodically. I mean, you have the, the Leashes, the Carlos, the Westmeads, the Antrims, you have now at the Offalys. They can be at any given stage a tier one, and they they may on occasions they will then on other occasions be a tier two. That's the that's the reality of life in the hurling world. But the notion that t- teams that are down in uh, tiers three, four, and five will ever come up and become tier one teams, 
And much as I hate saying it, I think that's simply not going to happen. But what we have to provide for those people are the type of supports and help where they want to keep the game alive, keep it developed, maybe add new clubs where it is necessary, and at least afford any young lad, and I'm talking with Sue Tapkamogi as well, afford any young person the opportunity to play hurling if they, if they so wish. We had it on the Komogi front, we had a situation last weekend, you know, where Mayo won the Nancy Murray Cup. So obviously it was, Komogi had died a death in Mayo for a while, but it's back again. So once we give the opportunity to young people to play the game uh, at whatever level they're comfortable at, that is the main thing. And I commend all the counties down through the tiers who are making a valiant effort to keep the game going and realising that you know, within the, the level at which they're playing, it is very competitive and very enjoyable. And I think that is the most important thing we can do for the game at this at, the, at this stage. Is it a personal sore point then for you that uh, in Kilkenny there's little to no football? Yeah, I would I would agree with you there. I did spend a lot of time. Uh, I did spend a lot of time promoting football. I played I played football. In fact, in 1982 when we won an All Ireland and I was playing myself in hurling All Ireland, I played uh, Leinster Club Football Championship the same year with Kilkenny footballers. And I played many years afterwards and I was asked to take on managing the team later on and I enjoyed it no end. And uh, unfortunately, Kilkenny, football in Kilkenny has now gone off the radar and I see little prospects of it returning to the inter-county scene and I'd be, I'd, I'd be telling a big lie if I wasn't up front and, and telling the truth about it. It's just not going to happen here. And, and, you know that as well and what, yeah, when people, what's your answer? Because people ask me, why, why is there no football? What's your answer when people say it? I ask you that question. Well, I suppose... Um, Hurling has got very dominant in the county now. We have a whole range of competitions. Now, I, I think it's important to state here to, to your listeners uh, that there is, there is a fairly vibrant Kilkenny football uh, range of football competitions here on in Kilkenny. They are corralled into a certain time of the year, but I will tell you this, there is far more club football played in Kilkenny uh, than there is hurling in a quite a number of counties. So people wouldn't want to get the impression that, inter that football is not being played in Kilkenny. But the question you raised to me earlier related to the inter-county football scene, and I think that's where, the, uh, that's where the difficulty lies. The last, the team that we had in the last number of years has been playing in the British Junior Championship. It's been managed by Christy Welch, a Kerry man, and, um, who is also a holder of a Munster uh, Railway Cup medal in hurling. And uh, they have been doing pretty okay and operating at a level that, that they're quite competitive at. So maybe that, that will continue. I'm not sure now because COVID has impacted that for the last while, but it, that would be where, where it, would, it would continue. And uh, hopefully that the likes of the minor football scene, which Kilkenny you know, went back into, got a, couple of, got a couple of bad beatings there. DJ was in charge of that. But there are other counties, minor teams struggling as well. So I think maybe there's a case for at some level of minor football to uh, just forget about the whole provincial structure and, and, and have competitions where these teams can compete against them in sort of tournaments or blitz competitions and, and at least keep it, keep it alive that way. You, you mentioned um, management of the Kilkenny football team, man, managed the Kilkenny hurlers as well in, in the mid-90s. Uh, when you look back on that time, how difficult a time was it for you? Because it... it we weren't hugely successful, Kilkenny, at the time. And when you, I suppose maybe with hindsight now, people would say we were kind of between good teams. It was, it was bad timing, maybe, on your part to find yourself in charge when you did. I'm not sure people cut you that slack in the moment, though. No, I look at uh, when I look back on it, it was probably if I was to take, if I could use the term, my GA career, it perhaps was the most uh, the part I, I enjoyed the least. 
I had been very successful, I suppose, with the team in the early 90s as the selector with Ollie. I was county chairman at the time, and uh, the county chairman was uh, was an automatically a selector on the team. We won the uh, we won the leagues. Uh, we won the league and um, championship double in 92 and 93. We were could have been a bit unlucky in 91. We also, I coached a team to win an All-Ireland under 21, as it was at that stage. And to be honest about it, after I had finished as chairman, um, I suppose I was asked to know would I be interested in managing the team. And I suppose one of my great failings when it comes to the GA is not saying, not saying no to things, but I took it on, but I was always conscious that this was going to be probably um, an, a time when we were going to have to bring new people onto the team and hand them over to whoever would follow. Now, Kevin Penley followed and then Brian Cody. Now, having said that, we were a bit, we were a bit unlucky. I was without a couple of key players in the two years. And in the year that we went in against Clare in the semi-final, and uh, we lost Liam Simpson and Michael Phelan at the quarter-final stage again, Galway, they got injured. So, look, who knows what the situation might be? But during that era, Clare, both Clare and Wexford came to the fore uh, with their uh, with their All-Ireland successes. And in the overall scheme of things, I think that was great for hurling. And while, you know, Kilkenny had lost out, and I in particular obviously lost out, but in the overall scheme of things, the swings and roundabouts in the game, and I think what Clare and Wexford achieve, achieved during that period, I think has been great for the game of hurling, great for the association. And, uh, uh, you know, in those counties, it's important that they continue to be competitive and be very much challenging at the top. And they're they're not at the top at the moment, but they're not that far away. No, hard not to look back with some fondness on, on that Wexford team of, of 96 and Clare the, the year before 95. Listen, Nicky, a pleasure as always, and I'm sure I'll talk to you again soon anyway. I've no doubt to be here. Thanks very much. Nikki Brennan, former president of the GAA, my guest this week for the Thursday interview. That is our lot for today's edition of The Hard Shoulder. If you want to listen back to anything that was on the show today, including on Taoiseach Micheál Martin, it's up now on the News Talk app. Off the ball, they're up next, and I'll be back tomorrow from four. Have a good one.